No one will be admitted after the guests check in. And my Molly dealer would always get so fucked up. He'd be like, "Have some Molly." We're like, bad practices, but yeah, my cocktail one never did that. <laughs> I was also a girl, which is yeah, a idea. yeah. Have some Molly. Maybe I'll see your boobles. He's gonna see them. All right. On that note, titties, titties. Welcome to Motel Hell. Like the energy. You like yeah. that? Yeah. Yes. Mama, 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 motel hell. Like that one less. <laughs> okay. A lot less. I'm gonna work on it. I'm Alexi. Maybe I shouldn't be using my last name. It's too late. There's already episodes up. I'm Alexa. <laughs> I do like that, but I don't think your last name is in any of them. Yes, it is. Oh, is it? And you guys also admit to dating on one of the most recent episodes. No, we're not dating. Uh-uh. No. Okay. I don't know her. We no, it's true. Her. It's true. Uh, Dick Fetty and I are actually in a relationship. That's right. It's a polyamorous. Sexual thing. in nature. Yeah, all I'm that talk about. The, tip of the triangle, if you will. I'm good with being a bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Only foundation. Me, yeah. I'm unshakable. To yeah. my left is... The bottom of the triangle. The bottom of the triangle. Also, the bottom in six positions with Dick Fetty. Butthole first. Ben the beard up. Shut, well, shut, else? shut your mouth. BHF. BHF. No, I'm trying to work like no, I'm trying no, no, to work no, no. this out. Butthole first. Well, yeah, I don't know what else. I don't have foreskin, so I'm gonna go dick first. To my right. What's your name, sir? Dick Fetty. Dick Fetty. Dick Fetty. I want my name to be spaghetti. I almost considered right, spaghetti. Whatever. <laughs> shaving my beard the other day, and mm-hmm. I was like, no, it's branded now. Now I can't. That's true. But well, the beard. Of, what it is mean? a podcast. They're not gonna know. Ben the Faso. I yeah. would tell them. Yeah, she would. Yeah. She'd be like, that's Ben the Beardo. He's living a fucking lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we're talking about something. Yep. I don't know what it is yet. I don't know what it is and either. And I'm going to be pleasantly surprised. We let Dick Fetty take the lead on this one. Yeah. It's probably going to have to do with fisting. 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 Yeah. No, I, I'll, I'm going to unveil our topic after we get through our movie review. Intro pieces the disco box in the disco box so let's talk about what we watched tonight let's talk about it so tonight's movie was sicario the 2015 film by uh dennis villeneuve 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 and uh yeah movie fucking rules movie was really dope yeah i've been watching a lot of documentaries and tv shows about pablo escobar and just felt the utter need to watch this movie again yeah. For what, the fourth time that we've watched it together? Third, I think. Oh, shit. You know what we should watch? What? Man on Fire. I've never seen uh, that. I great movie. love that fucking movie. I could, I could watch it any day of the week. One of my favorite movies of all time, I would say. It's, it's funny because there's a really good song by Nine Inch Nails in it. Uh, I think it's, um, oh, Christ, it's not the way through his out. It's one of the instrumentals from The Fragile. Just 
Bom, bang, the filming dun, of that movie. Bing, when, we bing, we should bing, watch bing. that next week. Dun, I think. I mean, next time we do this, because yeah. I want to talk about it. But this movie was super dope. Um, I really liked everything about it. I liked Emily Blunt's like fastidious character who was committed to doing good above all odds. Um, even like if I was her in that movie, I would have folded way quicker. Yeah, more into justice than Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. So the movie's about the Mexican cartels, the war on drugs, all that kind of stuff. Um, how it's just not working super great. And uh, it's if you've seen Blade Runner 2049, this is the same director. There's a lot of the same kind of overhead aerial shots. There's an excellent use of like pretty much an almost ongoing thematic score through the whole thing. And I forget the guy's name. He's Icelandic, the composer, but... It's it's this like kind of like a lot of like metal scraping and like slow rhythmic percussion and bassy drones and it's like everything very much your thing yeah, yeah. very and it was funny because the reason that uh, so Ben Mariah and I saw this in theaters and my parents called me Saturday night after they saw it and my mom was like we just saw this movie Sicario you have to see it. you're gonna love it like you're gonna love the cinematography you're gonna love the music yeah. it's not super dialogue heavy it's smart and the way it's written and like you know you're totally going to be into it and uh so i i think i like maybe read a description but i don't even know that i did that much because i try to go in blind for something if i want to see it so i called them up the next day i was like let's go to the movies we went that night and we were like one of five people in the theater and it was fantastic i mean it was so i really liked it i've seen it i think five or six times now i've hosted a viewing party here we watched it at your place Mm -hmm. i've watched it by myself, like, I sampled it for the newest Concrete Mascara record. It's a great, great yeah. film. It's violent, it's got Benicio Del Toro, Josh Brolin, Emily Blunt, and, uh, who's the other guy? The guy from Get Out. Yeah, I don't know his name. And, uh, there's somebody else in it, too. Oh, the guy from, um, The Walking Dead. Oh, right, Shane from The Walking Dead's in it. And it's, it's just fucking rad. If you haven't seen it, like, highly, highly recommend. And for me... I studied, um, when I was in college, I was international relations, but development and politics and stuff like that was, I was primarily focused in Asia, but I did a lot of studying in regard to South America as well, and as part of that I studied the drug trade and the Medellin cartel and the uh, FARC and the Narcos and all those things before they were making documentaries on Netflix, so this movie appeals to my core. Yeah. Nice. And just that whole, the, just... Anything involved involving the Midian cartel is just a, one of the craziest stories I've ever learned about, and it's just anything that has to do with it now. I'm like, yep, I'm gonna watch that. This I need to good. know more about because that's so up my alley. I really need to. I, I need to watch Narcos. I tried to watch it when I was in California when I was living with Narcos is uh, is good, but it's almost like the light version of I believe it, yeah. of the story because well, the story in it Pablo Escobar still painted as a bad guy, but you really don't get all of the horrible things he did and the timeline is sped up pretty quickly and this all took place over decades yeah yeah i believe that i was living with people that spoke spanish as his first language and i the way that i watch tv sometimes is very up and down and i just like could not get into it because i was like this is too much spanish but i think i could get into it now yeah i don't know i mean it's interesting because the um the Medellin Cartel and Pablo Escobar and all that are so horrible that for me, I can't really watch shows that glorify in any way the drug trade because, like, 
that's just it's too real to me it's not like it's not something to glorify it's not something that i find to be entertaining anymore so it's the same reason i'm really not into breaking bad and other shows like that and uh so i don't know it would take a lot for me to watch narcos because i just like i don't i don't find that to be entertaining you know what i mean like that's the world we live in and it's fucked up that like you know that's that's just not how i went unwind personally so interesting yeah, I don't know. It really it bothers me on like a deep level. So, I like you know, and we 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 talked a little bit during the movie, but it is serious and true. Where it's like you know, when you watch a movie like this and you see the kind of like utter inhumanity that's you know miles across the border from us in the southern part of the country, uh, it kind of gives you an appreciation for the real moral weight that you know your drug of choice might have. It's like okay, acid made in some bunker in Kansas, like fine, go nuts, you know, Molly, whatever. But most of the drugs that are brought here, weed, meth, coke, all that stuff, heroin, heroin has like a you know seriously heavy moral cost in terms of uh, the destruction of human life and sanctity and things in the Middle East and South America and East Asia and all that. But yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> 4.5 out of 5 for me. I love this movie. Yeah, I could watch it over and over again. I, I would say the same as you. 4.5 highly trained seals out of 5. <laughs> yeah. Not Navy seals. Actual seals. Actual seals. That's how they smuggle the drugs now. Uh-huh. The whole border thing was too hard. They just trained a bunch of seals to have little uh, waterproof that? cocaine packs. The meme that was like a turtle found with like eight kilos of coke attached to it no. it's like that's how they're doing it now i think these i just found these i don't know it just got tangled up in them yeah i i think i read something about them trying to use dolphins at one point that's i mean they'll do anything it's really great though i mean in in the one sense it's like provides some interesting news articles when you hear about like the bus in in uh cuba or in spain and places like that where they've got ports and they like bring in stuff and it comes in on the wildest vehicles possible <laughs> but then you remember that people get their heads chopped off. Just like a Lincoln yeah. Log raft. Yeah. Made out of actual Lincoln Logs. <laughs> yeah. That are filled with cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other interesting thing to note, you know, for those who don't know, America goes hard. And uh, 50% of the world's cocaine consumption, right here in America. We oh, love that yeah. shit. Yeah, we love Way it. more than any other country in the world. Partially because it's cheaper for us, but it's just like... You know, Colombia doesn't do it the way we do it. We just fucking love that shit. I don't think most people in Colombia even do it. Well, I don't just like get that out of here. Yeah, that's that's the cash crop. Those gringos. We do like gringos. Yeah, true. So yeah. Well, good. Four point five out of five. Yep. Now you're gonna make me yawn. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Getting it together. Now we're moving on to Dick Fetty's Disco Bucks. Bom, bom, bom. So I was uh, laughing to myself a little bit about this week's picks because some of it's just a rehash of last week and then Boom. we had talked in the past about when I actually get into that disco phase and here I am. Uh, I've been trying to... Exactly that actually is my one of my picks this week. So... There, uh, there was a time a few years ago where I got really into the boogie disco era, which is basically like 1979, mostly 1980 to like 84. It was a very specific sound, mostly came out of New York, and um, it worked its way into what became electro later on. And there are a lot of great groups out there, um, but my one of my picks this week is 
Surfaces Falling in Love, which is a 12 inch from 1983 on the yeah. Soul Soul Records, uh, which was uh, one of the many labels that pushed the boogie sound. And Surface was a, a male group that for a very short period of time had a female singer in it. And then they dropped her and they went into this much more commercial like vocal disco sound that I'm not into. But Falling in Love is an incredible mixture of like classic disco with a more electronic template um, and, and really sort of exemplifies the boogie sound. And there's specifically a later version of it that was came out in the 80s but wasn't really pressed on a proper piece of wax until uh, 1994 on the Gold Master series, which was also on Soul Soul Records. But it's a Shep Pettibone remix. And for those who know Boogie, Chet Pettibone, along with Larry LeVan, was one of the best remixers and did these extended versions of what were already excellent tracks, highlighting the electronics rather than the vocal element, and created this just like gorgeous, shimmering sound. And um, that uh, remix or, or uh, additional production for Falling in Love makes it like what is probably my favorite disco track. So big recommendation there. Uh, I wanted to re-recommend my, my picks from last week because I've basically been listening to the same records for the past two weeks. And uh, again, those were Overlooked Smoke Signals, uh, Pessimist Self-Titled Album, and Shifted's Appropriation Stories. And specifically, Overlook and Pessimist are just, it's like, goddamn, the best drum and bass I've heard in a decade. And has is so far beyond and different what drum and bass ever was 10 years ago mm. but like still retaining the energy and the the feeling of a good drum and bass song but with just like such an emphasis on atmospherics and uh much stronger dynamics there's none of the minute and 20 second intro like breakdown main part second uh basically second breakdown like intro kind of thing and then outro they're way less of this template style and way more you know, geared for home listening as well as club listening, and it's not like your normal kind of club night. And they're the kind of tracks, too, where you can slow them down to play them in a techno set or keep them at speed to play them in a drum and bass set. They're fantastic. Those albums are, like, amazing. Um, and to follow that up, I went to I went to this uh, event at a new venue in Brooklyn called Elsewhere this past weekend, and it opened up, like, a month ago, it's a club that has a bunch of different rooms and a really nice setup. It's in Bushwick in the warehouse district, so it's like kind of sketchy, but it's exactly the kind of thing I want to go to, the kind of space to hear techno in. And I drove a friend up. We got there at midnight, stayed till four in the morning, and um, we saw Silent Servant live, who is one third of, or one quarter rather, of Sandwell District, and now I've seen half of Sandwell District individually play live. Um, or DJ live rather, but uh, and that was good. It was it was better than I expected and way more hard edged. And with the proper club system, it's like some of the tracks he played, I I own. I was just like, oh nice, like this is, this is what it's like to hear it in a club. Uh, but the highlight for me was Shifted, who was the last, and I only got to see the first half of his set. But he played what to me sounded like not a DJ set, but basically a live reimagining of all the material he's released in the past like four or five years. So it was just this constantly building grayscale granular techno that would have you moving the whole time, but was just like all these little details. And it's not like quite minimal. This isn't Richie Houghton, but it's it's definitely a much more low key take on things. And it's all about texture and shifting patterns and, and just like 
non-stop thumping kick, but never like the mm's. It's a lot more of just like mm, mm, and then like crackling and mm. all these weird sounds on top of it. So in part, I re-recommend Appropriation Stories, his album from 2016, because seeing him live and then listening to that record all this week afterwards has like really given me an even greater appreciation for how good it is and how good it can sound live because some of the elements were definitely in that set. But I also wanted to recommend his uh, record from 2016, which was called Six Steps to Resurgence, which was two techno tracks and one just like drone, dark ambient, whatever, but in like this very clinical, very like cold, shifted style. They're really, really good. I mean, it's almost better than the album in the sense of it's just so precise. It's like this, I don't know, 19 minutes of perfect fucking techno. Maybe it's 15 minutes even if it's 19. So that one is really good. That was on his own imprint, Avian. And then also wanted to recommend Arrangements in Monochrome, Parts 1 and 2, which were records he put out in 2014 on Avian. And they are really like the more abstract side of Shifted. They're, they're, it's cold's not even the right word. It's not like a temperature thing. It's more of just like a lack of emotion. Like it's a, it's this just like, Gray is the only word. Like, it's just mm. elements, like, just different pieces of steel and iron all, like, mashed together into this, like, ultimate sediment of, like, just dense as fuck techno that leaves you with nothing to hold on to and, like, no, you know, easy listening experience. It's way more cerebral in a certain sense, but it's also, like, you turn that bitch all the way up at home and you're dancing. You're moving your butt. I'm but you're also, butt. you feel like you're you're drowning in, like, binary. It's, it's really wow. good. So... That's my disco box recommendations. Drowning and binary. Dick like Fetty's that. disco box. I'll get there. I'll be like the guy from Police Academy one day. You will. You just gotta keep practicing. I've never seen Police Academy. What guy do you refer to? He makes all the noises with the mouth. You've never seen Police Academy? No. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Nice guy. It's pretty okay. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I would enjoy it, so. Yeah. You know, it's 80s comedy. They made like a thousand of them. I know anyway. they did. We will move on to Dick Fetty's mystery topic. All right. Dick Fetty's mystery topic. Is it about fisting? I sure hope so. So Which would mean that you wrote a college paper (laughs) on fisting, which... Yeah, I am a classy guy. Fisting. No, so, uh, yeah, so this week's topic is brought to you by Desperation. Um, (laughs) I was quickly running out of ideas, and I figured that my academic life could come into some use at some point, and and here was my chance. So it was funny. We talked a little bit before, but I wrote wrote a lot of papers in college, and one of the papers I wrote was on FARC, which is the leftist group in Colombia that fought against the paramilitaries and sometimes fought against the cartels and things like that. And I thought about pulling that paper out if I could find it and basically talking about FARC and how they went from a grievance-based organization that was trying to bring about a communist revolution in Colombia into a money-based organization that forces farmers to farm coca leaves and then make lots of money by selling said leaves to the cartels who Oh, that's right. When I, when I said that your other topic that you didn't choose might have made me mad because you didn't choose yeah, it. Yeah, that would have been dope. So whatever, dope. whatever this is better be fucking good. Yeah. This one is good. So my senior year, I took a class uh, that was taught by a professor who was 
I believe the head of the media in the Israeli government at some point or something along those lines, he held some very high position in Israel for a while and was well connected. And it was about Israel, the media, and how politics in general, international politics, interact with the media and Israel specifically. This sounds like it's going to get controversial. And no, it's not. It's absolutely not. Um, so as my final paper for the class, I wrote about how the media... Israel and West Germany dealt with the Munich massacre at the Olympic Games in 1972 and the hostage-taking situation mm -hmm. for those who know anything about it. I know very little about it. What about you? But I have heard of it. I know some, okay. but this is your show, Dick Fetty. Okay, so shout out to my professor, Joseph Olmert, who was a good professor. And while I didn't really love that class, I did learn some stuff that I vaguely remember and at least have... <laughs> A written record of. It's not personal. I don't remember most of college. I was drunk through it. So, you know, and I, I want to preface this by saying as part of this research for tonight's topic, I had to, oh my God, read a paper from 10 years ago. Oh, and is it bad? It's pretty good, but it's not, it's not the, the quality of writing that I have today. Yeah. And there are questions I have uh, for my former self about the way I structured some of it. And, uh, <laughs> there is certainly a lack of editing after the fact, which was based on the fact that I wrote this during a week where I had a 15-page paper due every day for five days. So this was one of five that came out of that intense cycle. And I still got an A on it, or like an A- minus or whatever. So this is about to ask. Yeah. Great no, it was, it was, it was well-received. But um, I want to briefly go through my work's cited list uh, a little bit because I did pull this from real research and whatever. Uh, the primary research or major part of the research was the research. The, uh, film, the documentary One Day in September by Kevin McDonald, which came out in 1999 that covered this whole event. And then other big ones were, uh, let's see, it was Richard D. Mandel, The Olympics of 1972, A Munich Diary. John Rodden, The Wall That Remains, Eastern and Western Germany Since Reunification, and uh, what was the other one? Aaron J. Klein, Striking Back the 1972 Munich Olympics Massacre and Israel's Deadly Response, uh, 2005. So if you guys have any interest, which you probably don't, I can post the work cited page if you want to look into this topic with more depth. But um, yeah, so with all that being said... Or you could just Google it. I mean, you could just Google it. Google what? The incident. Yeah, I guess so. Sorry, I was trying to do a joke callback to when Alexa was telling people just to Google. Oh yeah, I'm gonna just Google it. Yeah. yeah, it's fine. It's but is the that thing is, is that is that pro suicide line Google for us to up or? Is free. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> this all goes down on September fifth to September sixth, nineteen seventy-two. It takes place at the. Munich Olympic Games in West Germany, for those who don't know, who were born in the uh, 90s and whatnot, you, you didn't even live when Germany was split in half. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so there was this thing called West Germany, and then there was another one that was called North Germany. No, that's that's a weird Southwest split. Germany. No, it was, oh, it was East Germany. East Germany, right, 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 right. Yeah. East and West Germany? Yeah. I didn't know, so... Yeah. So anyway, it, just, it wasn't just the West that was like surrounded by a wall, and the rest of it was just North Germany. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, yeah. Anyways, so 
the whole idea of this Olympic Games, it was a big deal because it came back to Germany after the last time they had it, which was in 1936 when the Nazis were in power. And they used the Olympic Games to basically showcase to the world that they were totally the tits and uh, look at our great graphic design and all of our cool uniforms and like this. Totally stopped killing Jews or whatever. No, they no, they didn't. They didn't pretend. Yeah, yeah. No, they had they had started, started, but not to the. They weren't at like max capacity and all the rest. But um, this was like before things had really hit the fan, mm -hmm. and this was like their big like look how great this we new are, Germany yeah. is, right? And um, so. West Germany was like, we're not about that. We don't want anybody to think that we're the new Nazis because we're totally not. We're like totally different. It's super different. Everything's different. And we are different. Yeah, yeah. We are very different than we was before. Yeah. Um, so they created the Olympic site, the Olympic compound and whatnot, right near what was the remains of Dachau, which was the first concentration camp in Germany, in a way to show like this was the new Germany, like we've moved past this and all this. And they had a ceremony at the beginning of the Olympics, which honored like the people who had died at Dachau. And let's try to get them not to think about the Holocaust. You know what we'll do? We'll, we'll build put this it on a concentration camp. Right near a concentration Smart. camp. Smart. Well, no, I mean, I think it's like, I mean, Germans today still struggle with their the past of World War II and all the rest. And, you know, it's a big part of their identity is. An acknowledgement and also a guilt of what happened. Yeah. Well, for which is how it should be. I think Germany handles that part of their past with such grace and, and dignity by educating their population about it, acknowledging and, and holding the country responsible, which is not something we do in this country. They also with have our one of the most interesting past. censorship rules for video games, too, because anything that has to do with World War II or Nazis... Is edited. Yeah. They also cannot have uh, humans what? being killed. They all have to be turned into robots. So, for instance, like Civilization Two, where Hitler is a power in that game, yeah. he's just blacked out and they change his name. Yeah. And then in Wolfenstein, they just change all the swastikas and they get rid of his mustache as if, you know, yeah. it's, totally, it's totally not Hitler. Yeah. So I don't know that that level of censorship is... Productive. I'm not saying it's productive, but it's interesting. It's interesting, definitely. I feel like, if anything, that just like makes people who support the cause rebel more. But I do think the way they educate about what happened during the war is how we should be educating our students about Christopher Columbus and slavery and shit like that. I feel like we don't do a really good job of doing that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I have a different view on education about World War II in Germany and based on talking with people from Germany mm. and things like that. And I also think that, you know, the difference is in the United States, our school, public school curriculums are so messed up because they're primarily controlled by Florida and Texas that we still teach creationism in some mm. schools. So the idea that we're going to be able to effectively teach U.S. history uh, when we're still teaching that people were placed here by God I mean, I don't disagree, like, we, sh we could do a better job of a lot of it, but, like, I went to a good public school, and we learned all about how slavery was bad, and that was part of our history, and all the rest. Right. So, I feel like I was very educated in the mistakes that America made, but it's also, like, you use that so that you can move forward on a better foot, hypothetically, and yeah. granted, we got fucking Trump in office, so yeah. you get what you pay for um, with public education, but at the same time, I don't know that the way they do it in Germany, and the level of guilt and fear and censorship they still have has been effective, especially because they now have more hate groups in Germany than they've had since World War II, and they're just pushed underground because of the insane censorship and all the rest. 
and people are like, we're sick of feeling like we have done something wrong because of something our grandparents did. You know, fuck that. There's a lot of um, bad shit that has happened as a result yeah. of their approach, in my opinion. Yeah, well, no, I, I think that's exactly what I was just saying about the level of censorship that Ben was talking about. Like, people can't die and they're turned into robots and Hitler can't even be mentioned. Like, I think you're right on that regard. I don't think that's an appropriate way to handle it. And it drives people underground. But, but it's not just the censorship that does that. It's part and parcel with the education yeah. and the national character with, in terms of how they handle what happened in World War II. And also the way that the rest of Europe treats them in many ways. And it's like, that's a topic for a whole other day, yeah, in yeah, my yeah. opinion. And since not, none of us live in Germany, nor were we educated in the German education system, I feel like we're mostly speaking from a position of ignorance that I don't think we should push any further. Listen, I'm American, and I'm never ignorant about not know nothing. Yeah, that's true. So don't you tell me how those Nazi comma bastards are doing things over yeah. there. Speaking of it, no, I'm not even going to do it. You know that there was a sex ed teacher in, like, I think it was in the South? That straight told her, stu like, that part of the sex education was, like, someone was like, what's the clitoris? And they were like, that's not a real thing. Yeah, I'm sure it's more than one teacher that said something that dumb. That's fucking insane I'm sure it's a woman who doesn't know where the clitoris yeah. is. She probably earnestly believed that. Oh. And thought that these kids, if they knew, they would be playing with Devil's Playground. And that's just bad l news. L listen, listen. The clitoris is a lot like the Holocaust. No. It never happened. No. To be fair, I'm a Jew. I did date a girl in high school whose dad was a Holocaust denier. Yeah. Which is... Good thing. I was just like, huh? Okay. All right. Keep going. Sorry. Bring us... <laughs> no problem. So, yeah. Story. So, Dachau, Olympic compound, etc. Right. So, this is where we are. We're at the very beginning. The idea of the Olympic Games has always been to... Unify countries, you know, uh, creeds, the whole nine races. Everybody comes together, and it's it's a mixture of national pride with like international fellowship mm -hmm. and good sportsmanship and all the rest. So like Germany was crazed about this whole idea. Like they really, really, really wanted to change international perception, and so they ran like ad campaigns for months and months and months before this. Like when they won the bid, I mean, they cleaned up Munich. They did everything they could. Mm -hmm. To make Munich like the new friendly home, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like this was going to be a happy, fun, wonderful place. They went so overboard on this desire to have a new face of Germany that they decided that they wouldn't have any police in the Olympic compound at all. They would only have, uh, well, no uniform police. They would have un unarmed, out of uniform, 2,000 cops who would just kind of make sure everything was fine and it would be fine. And I'm sure that went well. Yeah, no, no, I mean, what could, what could really... Uh, Happened. So, as part of the organization and they, when they were building the compound and, and uh, creating security measures and whatever, they asked this uh, German psychologist, George Seiber, to create 26 terrorism uh, scenarios so that they could prep in case of some kind of terrorist attack during the Olympic Games. And I'm going to get into more of what happened with one of his scenarios, but there was what was called Situation 21 that essentially predicted the entirety of what was about to happen on mm -hmm. September 5th. And they were ready. Yeah. What? No. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking and not very hard. So, okay. <laughs> sounded like two separate things. What do you mean? I'm so thinking, thinking and you were not very hard. And you're hard. not very hard. No. Which is a lie. Yeah. Yeah. So... All right. 
So at approximately 4.30 a.m. on September 5, 1972, after the Olympic Games had started, eight members of the terrorist group Black September broke into the Olympic Village, gaining um, assistance from what was believed to be American athletes who were drunkenly returning to the compound um, and sneaking over the gate, and they helped these terrorists who were dressed in tracksuits and looked like athletes as well oh get God. into the compound with them. America. Yeah. It was later claimed that they were Canadian athletes, but, like, nobody's owning that one, so <laughs> the mystery remains. Black September. Yeah. That's a pretty good name. Yeah, so... Uh, the Black September group was a Palestinian... Uh, blah, blah, blah. Palestinian... Mm. I can do this. I can talk to it. I can breathe so hard. Words. Was a Palestinian terrorist organization. Crushing it. Oh, so close. I almost said that without slowing my words. Associated with Yasser Arafat's Al-Fatah, the militant wing of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or the PLO. Black September took its name from the September 16th, 1970 event where King Hussein of Jordan began his process of eliminating or expelling thousands of Palestinians from Jordan in response to a failed militant coup d'etat. Mm. Black September had already carried out several operations, including assassinations, bombings, and a hijacking before its operation in Munich. And the operation was planned in the utmost secrecy. Some of the members of the team spent months before the games working at or around the Olympic Village in order to learn the layout, while others prepared at special training camps without knowing what they were training for and what their operation would be. It wasn't until the night of the attack that all the members were informed of the goals and the strategy in order to do this attack. And it's interesting because I was really wanted to watch tonight the film The Bader-Meinhof Complex, which is about the Bader-Meinhof group, which was a uh, left-wing radical terrorist group in West Germany. And they trained in camps where the PLO trained people, where Black September members were trained, mm -hmm. where other terrorist, uh, Arab terrorist organizations trained. Because during, like, the 60s and 70s, like, this whole, the international terrorism that we know today was really popping off. And there were these camps where people would send, you know, basically, like, leftists and radicals from, like, all, both sides of the spectrum would come. And they'd come to, like, Africa or the Middle East and train with AKs and whatever and learn how to do guerrilla warfare or whatever stuff. And there's an interesting part of the movie, the Bader-Meinhof Complex, where uh, they're at the camps and some stuff goes down and, and whatever. But uh, basically, like, these guys were no slouches. They knew, hypothetically, what they were doing in terms of uh, pulling off a successful terrorist attack. And um, they got into the, the Olympic compound, and they specifically got into the isolated area uh, where all the Israeli athletes were sleeping and, and staying. And Israel had voiced concerns prior to the beginning of the Olympic Games that, like, specifically the Israeli compound was isolated from the rest of the group so if something was to happen people might not necessarily know yeah but the olympic committee and the west german government were like we totally got this everything's fine we're going to beef up we'll security be totally good the yeah. fact that we have no cops with guns well they didn't tell them that yeah. so and i'm going to get into the whole you guys have cops with guns right totally yeah. so, so many. many of them yeah. what west germany did what they didn't do and what they admitted and what they won't admit to and and the sort of legacy that that has created and uh So, they broke in, and they stormed the Israeli uh, athletics apartments, and they first ran into uh, what was the Israeli um, wrestling team, and... Those are not the guys you want to meet. They'll pin you down. Yeah, so some you of them smooches. did try to 
stop the attack. Specifically, it was Joseph Gutfreund, a wrestling referee, and Moshi Weinberg um, fought in order to... Weinberg. It's a real Jewy name. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying anything. Yeah. Anyways, fought to, to stop them from coming in. Moshi Weinberg was shot through his cheek and then forced to help them find more hostages and then killed shortly thereafter. Um, and even though they were these huge wrestler guys and whatever, they were roused from their sleep by guys in masks. With, with guns. guns. Yeah. yeah, and they were like, okay. And uh, <laughs> okay. it didn't go well. So they wound up with 11 hostages within the next hour or so. There were some, I think, people from, I forget if it was China or Hong Kong or... I don't know, some non-Israeli uh, athletes who were in the compound too, and they basically let them all go. A couple of the Israeli athletes were able to sneak out, jump out, jump through windows and whatever to get out, but they they grabbed 11 people, held them at gunpoint. So, <clears throat> while the uh, Black September group originally have 11 hostages, like I said, I, I forgot that... So as part of the 11 that's counted in when you look at the total numbers at the bottom of the Wikipedia page or whatever when you read about this in short form, the two two of the hostages were killed right away, one of them being Moshe Weinberg, and the other one was Yosef Romano, who was a veteran of the Six-Day War, um, and he also tried to attack the intruders and was shot. There was, it was claimed in a December 1st, 2015 article in the New York Times that Romano was allegedly castrated after he was shot, Ooh. but I didn't read that in any of the materials I had read before, and I don't know whether that's true or not, but a lot of the official documents about this have still never been unsealed, and, right. and the West government has kind of kept a close lid on a lot of what happened. So the nine hostages that were left were uh, Gutfriend, um, a sharpshooting sharp coach named Kehat Shore, Track and field coach Emitzer Shapira, fencing master Andre Spitzer, uh, weightlifting judge Yakov Springer, wrestlers uh, Eliezer Halfen and Mark Slavin, and weightlifters David Bergeron, no Berger, sorry, and Zev Friedman. Uh, As a Jew, you're pronouncing these names very well. I'm trying to. You're doing pretty good. Thank you. So people started to wake up after the gunshots started going off. Um, the some of the athletes that escaped and the the non-Israeli athletes that left went to go get help. They started like they told the un um, the oh my god the ununiformed. There's got to be a better word for that. Um, the plain clothes officers. officers. There you go. Guys, get your guns. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. About that. But this was happening, and the. The other thing that was happening, too, was that there was a massive media presence for the Olympics. Yeah. Now, this is like 5 in the morning at this point, so there's not a ton of cameras rolling, but they're already kind of starting to get their day about. Yeah. So the media catch wind of this pretty much as soon as it starts happening, as do the, eventually the German police and then the Olympic Committee and whatever. One of the things that's unclear from the notes I have, both the paper I wrote and then the subsequent research I did, prior to this, is that it's not clear when the terrorists first interacted with the... Olympic Committee and the German police. So Black, the Black September group um, main demand was the release of 234 Palestinians and non-Arabs jailed in Israel, along with two German insurgents who were dun, 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 Andreas Bader and Ulrika Meinhof, who were the founders of the Bader-Meinhof group. That was a good segue. Yeah, I tried to. 
and um, were imprisoned in Germany at the time. This was like the end for them. And uh, as part of that too, there was demands that Israel basically pull out of the places they had encroached upon. But that wasn't really their primary demand. The primary demand was the focus on these release of these hostage or these prisoners. In well, I'm sure that they realized that Israel wasn't going to pull out of those places. Yeah, well, it was right. just kind of like a hail mary. It's like, yeah. yeah, we want all of this stuff. Plus, you know, like maybe Israel should pull out of uh, our all of our land and everything. Right. You know? All right. What about the other stuff? It's like when you're negotiating and you're like, I'll give, I'll, I'll give you five bucks for it, and they originally offered you like two hundred dollars you know you gotta go yeah, yeah. yeah i totally see to break them down yeah mm -hmm. right so they threw moshi weinberg's body out of the third story window in oh. front of everybody and we're like we're not fucking around and like here's how so the police were like okay and uh they're basically like we're gonna talk to israel and see what we can do <laughs> we're gonna we're get israel on the phone real quick yeah and beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, yeah they were Israel, like, Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. We've had some hard times. <laughs> Listen. This is interesting. So you're, you're going to love this, but maybe not. Anyways, we've got a couple hostage takers here, and they want to know about these prisoners you got. You know anything about Palestinians? You don't. Okay. All right. Good talking. No, how are the kids? They're good? Okay, good. We're having the Olympics. Yeah, no, it's crazy. But, um... Basically, kind of, yeah, because they call Israel, and Israel's like, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And they're like, o okay. They're like, absolutely not. We're not doing anything. Um, and as part of that, there are reports I've that are both in my, my paper and I read about a little bit. There's conflicting <laughs> information as to whether or not Israel offered to bring in Mossad to deal with the situation. They're like, we're not negotiating, but we'll send our guys in. And Mossad's like the CIA Mossad, of yeah. Israel. And they're... Um, They'll fuck some shit up. Yeah, they're legendarily yes. unscrupulous. Yeah. Like, they are really rough and tumble. And uh, and so supposedly they offered that to Germany, who was like, nah, we don't want Mossad here. And they're like, you sure? We got, like, people all, all like, super close by. We can do I mean, we're thing. already there. Yeah, right. So, um, but no, they were... And then other reports are like, that totally never happened. So whether or not it's true, I don't know. Like, it, it could go either way. But basically, <laughs> Germany was like, that seems like a whole can of worms we don't really want to open. We can we can super handle this. And um, they told the, the Black September group, they were like, we're, we're working on it. But how about this? How about this? Unlimited money if you let the hostages go. And uh, Can you even promise that to somebody? <laughs> yes, I yes, you can. I would love if they were just how? like, we just talked to Israel. They said it's cool. Let them go. They're totally cool with the idea. Yeah, no. So, But they, what they did offer was unlimited funds. They said, we'll pay any price for you to release the hostages. And Black September was like, no, you obviously don't understand what this is about. This is not about money. Like, this is about principle. This is about giving a voice to the Palestinians who are being trampled by the Israeli state and all this kind of thing. And they were on, you know, like a real, what they saw as religious or partially yeah. religious mission. And You know uh, one guy was just like, how much do you think we can get? <laughs> yeah. Did they say unlimited? Yeah, so uh, Louis, Louis Richardson describes um, terrorist groups generally as having three main uh, focuses, revenge, renown, or and reaction. So revenge is like you're getting back, you know, uh -huh. revenge is revenge. That's uh -huh. pretty self-explanatory. But the renown is like getting the voice heard, and then the reaction is what the world does after the event. Right. So, you know, we know 
at least like I was aware of what PLO was before I ever wrote this paper. Like I knew about PLO since I don't know high school probably, and I knew about the sort of Israel versus Palestine plight and things like that. And that's PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization. Organization. Yeah. Okay. Um, since I was like I don't know in high school and before that, like in the in the period between the Olympics and the end of World War II, when Israel was established and Palestine was basically broken up and and people were forced out of their homes and all the rest, uh, nobody knew nor really cared about what was happening in Palestine. And from the, like, looking back at what Black September did, they were completely successful in the sense of they wanted to give a voice and an international stage and spotlight to the Palestinian cause, and they did this because ever since then, people have known, cared, and had interest mm -hmm. in what's been happening in Palestine and the whole struggle. And that's not to say it's changed, like, America's position in the way we support Israel or a lot of other countries, but it uh, certainly has put them in the limelight like nothing ever had before that. And there had been some other hijackings and other things like that prior to this done by PLO and PLO-related groups, but this was, like, the big one right. that got everybody's attention. And... You know, in terms of the reaction, it didn't have the effect that they wanted in the sense of Israel didn't, like, relinquish its territory or dissolve its state or anything like that. But they still got more support in terms of both government and non-governmental groups um, than they ever had prior mm. to the Munich massacre. And I'm going to touch a little bit more on that after I go through the rest of what happened. Well, it's funny how, like, it, the idea of Israel affects uh, so many American Jews over here because the way it is is pretty much, if you're a Jew and you're not pro-Israel, you're a bad Jew. Yeah. And I've had people all my life, oh, you've never been to Israel? you got to go to Israel. you got you got to go see all the sites. My parents came back recently, maybe a few months ago. Wait, do you have birthright? I, I'm too old. Really? Now. Yeah, I never um. went. So, but yes, I would have had birthright yeah. because I went through all of the stuff to be a Jewish boy. But there's a picture of my dad standing in front of a sign that in so many words says, do not cross this line. If you cross this line, you will probably die and we cannot help you. Oh my God. I just thought that was funny. And my dad's a super old Jewish guy. So it's just, he wanted to stood a chance. <laughs> I do want to um, touch to just a little extra background information on Black September. So the operation itself was called Operation Ikrit and Biram, which was after two Palestinian Christian villages whose inhabitants were expelled by the Israeli Defense Forces during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, uh, which is sort of speaks to that rev revenge motive. And the guy who was the sort of point man for this whole thing was... Lutif Afif, um, who was born in 1937 or 1945 and died in September 6, 1972, which is the next day. We're going to get there. So he was the, the main guy, and his nickname during the operation was Isa, which means Jesus in Arabic, mm. which uh, is kind of fun. I thought it was going to be Big Dick Larry. <laughs> no, no, that's uh, Ifsa. Or, so. or Johnny Two Time, because he just says everything two times. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. So anyway, uh, yeah, so that's, that's a little, little bit of information. So the West German police were basically like, what the fuck do we do? How do we, how do we rescue these hostages? Because we have no idea. This was before West Germany, before the United States, before most countries in Europe had dedicated counter-terrorist organizations. 
So they had no training, no tactics, no special operatives, no special equipment, like no know-how yeah. on how to do this. And essentially went about asking everybody who was already at the Olympic compound and everybody else who was in the Munich police force, like, who wants to volunteer to rescue some hostages? Anybody, anybody interested in this? Like, it's going to be kind of wild. We're making it up as we go. But who wants to get in on this? I was like, oh, Yeah, no. most people were like, no, not really. We're kind of going to pass. And so they got a small contingent of what was a much larger police force to say, like, yeah, we'll do what we can. Well, I'm sure they really wanted to get this solved, too, because it's a bunch of Jews under fire, and they don't have a good history with Jews and fire. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, that's the whole thing that's, like, sort of bringing this to a much quicker boiling point than any other hostage situation is... Not only is there just the sort of historical uh, background that adds to this pressure of, like, we don't want to fuck this up, but on top of it, for the first time ever in the history of any kind of international event, you've got 24-hour news coverage. So suddenly, like, all the cameras that are covering the games are now covering the story as it's unfolding. So you've got camera crews from stations around the world that are just, like, filming as the cops are outside and the hostages are upstairs and the like they're trying to negotiate what is this like super tense hostage situation question yeah are the olympics have they started at this point or yeah, are they just like already started. okay so what like what what happened to the state of the game so they're just they like, kept going they really kept going yeah so they kept going because originally the olympic committee and the west german government were like well it would seem like we're capitulating to this hostage situation and these terrorist demands so we're just going to keep running the olympic games so while these stations are shooting these scenes of you know, the body being thrown out of the window by Black September or, like, the athletes that they push up to the window to talk to the German police and then headbutting them, or not headbutting, hitting them in the head with uh, the backs of the machine guns and dragging them back into the room. And you've got these guys with machine guns, like, just standing outside basically being like, you know, fuck the West yeah. and all the rest of this stuff. They're also shooting scenes of, like, the Olympic athletes, like, sunning themselves by the pool and running races and people are like watching this all as it unfolds and they're like, are you fucking kidding oh me? Like, this is your response. So Germany's under criticism immediately for the way they're handling it. And they're already like, we don't know what we're doing and we need to do it right. Like, yeah. So it's like this powder keg of fuck. And yeah. it's, it's super bad for everybody involved. And the hostages more than anybody know this. And the other big problem that the uh, German police didn't realize because they were wildly inept was that there were TVs in every athlete's room. So the PLO, or, or the Black September group, is watching all, all of what the, the police action is happening outside. Yeah. And they're watching like the international coverage and being like, oh, we're doing a great job. Well, this is we're what... really killing it. Right oh, now. It reminds me of the Berkeley hostage situation where they hadn't figured that shit out either. And they were... Literally, the reporters got wind of the raid they were going to do and reported on it while the guy's sitting inside watching it. He's like, oh, this is what the cops are going to do. So it's like, before the time of, of understanding what to do tactically. Yeah, right. So it's it's like, it's fucked from the get-go. Yeah. And the first brilliant rescue attempt, this is like some shit out of a video game. They're like, all right, so here's what we got to do. We're just going to bring some super-ass heavy crates of food, and we're going to get our guys in, like, janitor uniforms and, and, and like, you know, non-scary, non-police clothes. We're going to hide some guns on them, and then we're going to put these big, big, 
pallets of food outside for the hostages and for the terrorists to be like, yo, you gotta come get the food. And then, like, they're gonna come out and they're like, it's too heavy, and then we're gonna gun them down, and, like, it's gonna be too totally heavy. They're gonna, great. they're metal gear soliding it. Okay, yeah. I really thought you were gonna be like, and they got inside the crates of food. No. Trojan horse situation. No, no. Covered no. themselves in apples. No, that would be better. That would be way that, better. David yeah. Hayter, who plays <laughs> Snake, is just out there somewhere <laughs> hiding with. With a fucking eye patch on. <laughs> yeah. The world is torn into two. Yeah. And uh, so the terrorists, though, as part of their operation planning, were told that they wouldn't be able to withstand 24 hours of pressure. Basically, their goal was to get the hostages, get the prisoners released, and if their demands weren't met, leave the country with the hostages. Like, that was their only plan. They weren't there to eat. They're not going to have tea and fucking crumpets. And so they bring out these big pallets of food, and they're like, yeah, we're not doing that. Like, we're not coming out. If you don't bring them up to us, fine. Like, whatever. The hostages are going to be We're not even hungry. hungry. Yeah. yeah. We don't even care. We're full of rage. I don't even like that food. <laughs> yeah. I'm vegan. What is this, German? Oh, my God. Sausages? How insensitive. I don't eat pork. I'm Muslim. <laughs> so, yeah. Germany really blew it with that one. So their next plan was even better. They were just going to storm the compound. Yeah, great. So they that get everybody. anyone killed. Yeah, right. So they get everybody on the roof. They get people outside. And uh, they said at 5 o'clock, like, and they're stalling the whole time. You know, this like 12 hours have now passed. And they're stalling the, the terrorists. They're like, we're still working with Israel. We're totally going to get these hostages out for us. Just give us a little bit more time. Now, meanwhile, what they don't know, again, is the terrorists have their own clock. They're like, once we hit 5 o'clock in the morning, if we're not out of here, we're killing everybody and we're killing ourselves. Yeah. But like, Or we're going to try to boogie. But we're not sitting around all day waiting for you to free the host the yeah. prisoners. So they get all ready to storm it, and they've got this go-word sunshine. And at five o'clock, they're gonna storm the compound. Well, again, cops are or the the media is outside, and they're just filming everything. So the terrorists are just like watching them. They're like, all right, they're on the roof now. We're gonna have to watch these vents. They're like, the police are waiting to, to storm the compound. I don't think they're the do I don't think the Black September guys had uh, German accents. No, that no, was, that's the reporters. That was the reporters. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. At so, least one reporter had a German accent. Yes, that's uh, uh, definitely true. So <clears throat> at five o'clock, it rolls around, and they're like. <laughs> They, they, they don't give a code word, so they're all just standing there waiting, and then they get on the radio and tell all the other cops that um, they're going to call off the operation because it's been compromised due to the media presence. So they're like, okay. So at this point, the Black September group is like, we're fucking done with this. We want safe passage out of here, and we want to get to whatever airfield the main <coughs> airfield is in Munich, we want safe passage and we're going to fly wherever. And they're like, where are you going? They're like, we don't know yet. Just fill up the plane and get ready for us. And they're like, no, you don't want to do that. Like, we've got a closer airfield. It'll be way better for your needs, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the media's like, they totally don't have a closer <laughs> airfield. No, but no. stupid terrorists. <laughs> totally believe it. No, they did, they did have, in fact, have a closer airfield than the one that they originally had requested. And, um... They, they said to them, though, that they would walk them to the airfield and, or no, I apologize, they would walk them to helicopters that would then take them to the airfield. And the German police's third or fourth rescue attempt at this point, idea was that when they got them to leave the compound, they would have a bunch of German officers just hiding in the bushes, essentially. And when they would start to walk to the helicopters, they would pop up and they would gun down all the terrorists and save the hostages. And they were like, this is foolproof. This Jesus is the greatest Christ. plan. And the other huge problem that the German police had was, at one point 
two of uh, two members of the German police were allowed to come into the quarters where all the hostages were and take a look to make sure that the <coughs> hostages were actually alive because yeah. they had already thrown one body out of the window. Yeah. And um, they saw what they thought was four or five terrorists when in fact there were eight terrorists. Uh. So they're anticipating like four or five people, nine hostages, like this won't be that bad. And so Black September's like, Okay, yeah, we'll walk to the helicopters, but we're gonna come check out the route first. And they're like, oh yeah, no problem, totally come out. So they're thinking like Black September guys are just gonna come out and then they're gonna shoot him dead and it's gonna be fine. Well, no, they come out with the hostages who they're holding at gunpoint. Obviously. And they're like, you know, we're gonna go walk down the thing. And then they just see a bunch of cops who are like partially obscured, like, <laughs> like no shit. And um, just oh, in a ghillie God. suit in the middle of the streets, like, I am the bush. <laughs> yeah. So they're like, no, we're, we're not walking to your fucking helicopters. We want you to bring us a bus that'll bring us to the helicopters, and then we'll go to, um, go to the airfield from there. So the German government's like, okay, fuck it. Let's get the bus. We'll put them on these helicopters, but here, we got a new idea. We got a new plan. What we're going to do is we're going to fly them to the airfield, but we're going to have a sniper team ready. So when they get out of the helicopters, we're going to have the snipers fire on these, these terrorists. Because they still think there's only four. They yeah. haven't seen them all at one time. Kill the four, the four guys. No big deal. Hostages go home safe. And just in case they get into the plane, we'll have all the plane people actually be undercover cops. And they'll have machine guns. It'll be totally good. I thought you were going to be like, we'll get them on the bus, but we'll dress up all of our police people as the seats. So when they sit down... Boom, they grab them. Did and they, wait, did they not know how to pilot a plane? They're going to need the a terrorists? pilot. Yeah. No, they, they didn't. don't. This, okay. is, this is like. So they know. would need a pilot. Right, so they okay. need a pilot. So they're like, you know. We'll we, have the stewardesses dress up. Why are all your stewardesses <laughs> mustachioed men? Would you like a packet of nuts or justice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, they were, they were hoping it would be this pincer attack where. Uh, the flight crew, the snipers, and then what the the other aspect of it was they would bring in armored cars so that they could race in, get the hostages in the armored cars, and then have this like big crazy crossfire and kill all these these bad men. Sounds foolproof. Yeah, it was it was super brilliant. Except for a couple things. So they're bringing at this point, Black September is now taking this bus to the helicopters. They're going with the hostages. They're going to go to the airport. The German government kind of, they screwed a couple things up. So first, they sort of forgot to send the armored cars. They just kind of forgot about that whole part of the plan, which was like a pretty good part of the plan. <laughs> Maybe the best part of the yeah, plan. Yeah, they just forgot. And then they, they didn't have snipers. They just picked three guys in the police force who they knew recreationally did sharpshooting on the weekends. And they're like, you guys are snipers now. Check oh this out. It's going to be super great. And, Try uh, not to kill any of the hostages. Yeah, right. And hey, so, you, uh, Johnny, Johnny shakes a lot. <laughs> You're going to be one of our snipers. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. And so they do that, and um, they send them out there without radios. So they send out the sniper team, and then one of the snipers leaves. So it's two snipers in one spot, and then another sniper who's like more or less on the tarmac between the plane and the other snipers. And they're like, this They'll is going to be brilliant. Me. And then they're like, you know what? We don't need radio communication with our snipers. So the snipers are now, like, set up, but completely blind and have no idea what's happening because they have no way to communicate with the rest of the German police. The cops who go to the plane, they're sitting on the plane waiting for the helicopters to arrive, and they're like, this is a fucking suicide mission. Yeah, like, And they just leave. <laughs> they just leave the plane. They're like, we're not fucking doing this. We're going to die. Home. Yeah. 
And they don't tell the helicopter pilots how or where to land or how the plane that they're setting up. So, you know, there's news coverage of all this and, and, and all the rest. So they have all the hostages with them? Yeah. All 11. So they split the, well, no, the nine, because the two of the hostages just are dead. Do they know at this point that there's a total of eight terrorists? No. No. So they killed the one guy and threw him out the window. When did they kill the other guy? Uh, as soon as they came in. Okay. So he, he, that was my mistake. The other on. Yeah, so too. there was... There was 11 hostages altogether, but two of them were dead within, like, the first hour okay. of the whole event. Okay, so they have nine hostages. Yeah, so they don't, they they realize, some of the police force realizes that there are eight uh, terrorists when they're getting onto the bus and forcing the hostages with them, but they have no, no way, way to re relay this yeah. information to the snipers. Now, when, in normal, like, combat tactics, there should be two snipers per target. Now there are like three targets per sniper. Yeah. So it's a totally like this is never ever gonna work yeah. right. Plus you got one sniper just like twiddling his thumbs on the tarmac. Like, yeah, basically. Good luck. So the helicopters land. The helicopter pilots don't know the plan, so they land in the wrong spot, and they're like not in view of the snipers at all. And everybody gets out of the helicopters, and the snipers can't see shit. And then um, basically the terrorists get onto the plane, and nobody's there. And they like, like, what the fuck is happening? So some of the terrorists stay with some of the hostages in the helicopters. The other terrorists stay on the plane. And then when they realize, like, everything's fucked up, they just start shooting all the hostages. Oh, my God. Then one of the terrorists throws a grenade into the helicopter where some more of the hostages are, blow up the helicopter. Oh, my God. The snipers open fire. Some of the terrorists try to leave the plane. The sniper who's on the tarmac starts shooting at that terrorist and accidentally shoots some of the hostages, too. Oh, my God. And then the other snipers who don't know that the one sniper is separate from them start shooting at the sniper because they think he's a terrorist. Yeah. This is like you could. This is like a comedy of errors. Where is the Benny Hill theme song? Yeah, unfortunately though, it's not really um, funny. <laughs> Thank you for the <laughs> clarification, Frank. Wow. But um. How's the air up there on your high horse? No, no, no. Unfortunately, no. it's not very funny. No, but I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. It's and that was really. I thought to myself as I was. Going through all this, I'm like, this is this is really is a comedy of errors. Like yeah. this is this is insane. Like how could anybody fuck it up this bad? Yeah. And the best is that like when the helicopters are halfway to the airfield, they realize they forgot the armored transports. So they're like, oh shit, the armored transports over here. They get stuck in traffic. <laughs> who are they stuck behind? But all the news vans that are trying to get to the airport oh to God. watch this all yeah. unfold. So like the armored trucks show up is like everybody's literally fucking dead. None of the hostages survive. Three of the terrorists survive, and the there's I believe it was two cops who were killed and one who was the sniper who was injured and but did not die. So to reiterate, the final loss of life was all eleven hostages, the two that were killed originally, and then the nine who were killed in the airfield, five of the terrorists, two policemen, and then there were several wounded policemen. On top of that now talk about comedy of errors as part of what happened the initial reports that came in from the news were that all the hostages were rescued everything's totally great Shut the fuck. yeah so like they're broadcasting this live now this is pre CNN and I, in the movie I watched um, the documentary about it <clears throat> granted I'm remembering this through a boozy library visit where I sat and watched this film in some back room and whatever, 
they they had the clips from the American journalist who was there, who was doing like the twenty four hour coverage of it, and he was like, everything's great, like you know, we got all the hostages, all the terrorists are dead, blah blah blah. Then they start to get the actual reports in, and they're like, you know, basically are. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he said. You know, generally things aren't as good as we think or as bad as they're going to be. Well, this time they're as bad as they could possibly be. All the hostages have perished. And, you know, there were multiple police deaths as well as five of the terrorists. Our bad. Yeah. It was a big whoopsie. So, uh, let me backpedal on that last report. <laughs> it seemed way rad. It totally <laughs> wasn't. <laughs> so, you guys know how we said all the hostages were saved and everything's great? Think of, like, the opposite of that. And <laughs> that's where we're at right now. Yeah. So, basically, it was a giant fuck-up from the West German perspective, from the Olympic Committee perspective... Israel was like, you fucking blew it. And um, the world was generally pretty outraged by the way that both West Germany handled it in terms of the actual rescue operation itself. You know, And I can imagine as a government it's got to be difficult to be under a 24-hour constant news scrutiny by like every news station in the world from a, any country that has a news network. But at the same time, like they just, they just fully blew it. And they didn't understand the kind of terrorism they were dealing with in the same way that they didn't understand like what it's like to be under a 24-hour news broadcast yeah. scrutiny, nor what it meant to have an actual tactical operation. And yeah. one of their biggest problems was that, and it was unclear to me from my research, but either it was an IOC rule or it was a rule in Germany itself where they were not allowed to have the military involved like in, at the Olympics at all. So they, weren't, they didn't have the military involved in any of this action. Yeah. It was all police. And the police aren't trained for this kind of thing. This is like... And, it, I mean, really, counterterrorism at its best should be treated as a police action rather than a military action because you can't have a war on terror. Like, that's not how it works. You need to treat this as basically... It's like a hybrid kind of police action, really, but with, like, military-grade training and yeah. tactics and weapons and whatnot. But uh, they didn't have any of that shit, so it was just... It completely fell apart. And um, since the event... Many of the families of the Israeli athletes have wanted to know, like, what happened, who's responsible, like, why was this cocked up so badly? And the West German government, and now, like, just the German government, has been like, we're not disclosing it, essentially. And the guy who was essentially responsible for the police, Willy Brandt, was also, I, I forget if he was the prime minister or he was the head of the interior, something along those lines, head of, you know, interior security. But he, he had done a lot of the operations against the Bader Meinhof group when they were at their height, and they, they had had some success, but this wasn't that. Like, this was a whole new situation. And, you know, it uh, very quickly thereafter developed into the creation of the GSG-9, which I'm going to get to in a second, which is Germany's premier counter-terrorist group. Um, and, again, Navy SEALs came out of things like this and all the rest. But they just, they didn't know yeah. what to do and how to do it. Um, and the whole 24-hour news cycle idea, this CNN coverage of, of major events and things like that, basically blossomed from this single happening because people tuned in all across the world to find out what was happening the entire step of the way. Yeah. So, like, the coverage we have from everything of Sandy Hook to 9-11 and, and all the events that have basically transpired since then, um, all of that type of 24-hour news coverage where they just keep repeating shit and giving you moment-to-moment -moment updates, like, that's all because of the Munich Massacre. Interesting. 
I mean, it's it's crazy, sort of the shit storm of factors, which is 24-hour news cycle from every outlet in the world, which hindered a lot of their tactical attempts, absolutely no tactical training, and no idea what the type of terrorists they're dealing with. So they're sort of like, we'll give you money, and the terrorists are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, not what we want at all. It was sort of like the great storm of not knowing. So the the final kind of uh, wrap-up for this was that the five bodies of the Palestinian attackers, Afif, Nazel, Sheikh Tha, Hamid, and Jamal, um, who were killed during the gun battle, were delivered to Libya where they were received heroes' funerals and were buried with full military honors. Um, as a result, the Israeli government, in response, did two things. They commenced with Operation Wrath of God and Operation Spring of Youth. Wow, Holy Wrath of shit. God. They are not... Well, that's Did kind of hugs and yeah, That's a little on the nose for me. Yeah, well, it's funny because uh, there was criticism um, <laughs> about what happened after this, or at least Israeli's response, because Operation Wrath of God was... Wrath of God. Wrath of God was, let's kill the three guys who lived. They don't deserve to live, and let's hunt them down and kill them. And I... I can't believe they returned the bodies. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll get to that yeah. and, and why that happened in a second. Uh, and then the Operation Spring Spring of Youth. So they were both bad in the sense of one was like, we don't care about international law. Mossad's going to kill these guys because yeah. they're bad dudes and like we want them dead. And the Spring of Youth was when they bombed the ship out of um, Lebanon. Yeah. So, you know, they just like... They, they attacked a bunch of camps and all the rest. So Israel commences these two delightful operations. And they were criticized because they were like, these are just clearly revenge operations. And Israel was like, no, they're not. And they're like, the one's oh. called Wrath of God. And they were like, that's just like, you know, it's just justice. It's, just, it's a cool name. It, it would know? be revenge if we cared. We don't even care. This is just what has to happen per God's, like, you know, we eternal named law. It, we could have named it. Bad dog, but it doesn't sound as cool as Wrath of God. It's metal, you don't you don't get it, Mom. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is a revenge plot. No, it's not. <laughs> What's interesting though is that the terrorists that survived were held in Munich in prison, waiting trial. But a month, almost two months later, on October 29th, Lufthansa Flight 615 was hijacked, and they threatened to blow up the flight if they didn't release the uh, prisoners these terrorists from the Munich jail so the German government capitulated and there is some speculation which is mildly mildly believable that the West German government was like we don't even want to fucking deal with this like yeah. this has been such a debacle that like we're going to release these terrorists because we know Mossad's going to hunt them down and kill them and then like we don't have to worry about it anymore yeah. we don't want to put them on trial we don't want to deal with any of this this is like it's a win for Israel it's a win for us just tying up our penal system resources so they let them go and uh, they also tried to still get um, Ulrika Meinhof and Andreas Bader out from prison, and they were like, no, we're keeping them. <laughs> we, like, they, they, they caused a lot of trouble in West Germany, yeah. so we're just going to hold on to those so guys. So they released them and got them safe passage back, yeah. essentially? <laughs> yeah, and they were... Safe passage with air quotes. Yeah, right. Well, there wasn't much they could do to protect them in the long run. Eventually, Massaut hunted down two of them, 
There's one guy that supposedly is still alive uh, from the attack, and he was interviewed for the documentary with, like, you know, the cool, creepy yeah. monster voice and the shadow over his face and whatever. But is supposedly one of the, the last remaining terrorists from the attack and still alive today. Wow. So, um, there's also speculation that as part of releasing the hostages um, from the Munich attack, and getting Lufthansa back, because that, that was a successful, like, they eventually landed the plane and took control of it. And, right. Uh, um, terrorists all surrendered that they made, they bargained with the PLO and the group responsible for that attack, saying, like, just stop doing this shit in Germany, and uh, we'll, we'll let them go. And they didn't do much with Germany yeah. after that. So, like, I don't know that that's really true, but it's also interesting, because I had a, a professor in college who was um, a former CIA counter-terrorist analyst, and he talked about that, of all the places in Europe, the biggest place for, um, the biggest hub of Arabic, or, you know, it's, to call it Arabic terrorism isn't really right, because it's it's basically politicized religion, so it's no longer yeah. religion, it's, yeah. it's just like um, Muslim, or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, terrorism is Germany. Yeah. There's, like, a bigger hotbed of terrorist and terrorist network there than anywhere else. And, I mean, there's a lot of attacks that happen more in France and all that, but, like, they're staged out of Germany. 9-11 yeah. was partially staged out of Germany. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I mentioned that GSG-9 came out of this. They were formed on April 17th, 1973. So, you know, three, seven months later, they, they created uh, Grinschutz Group 9, GSG-9. And if anybody's played, like, uh, Rainbow Six or Counter Strike or any of those games, you know, all the counter terrorist teams and players are based on these real organizations. SEAL Team Six was created in November 1980. GIGN, which is France's counter terrorism unit, came out, um, rolled out in 1974. Uh, whereas Israel, on the other hand, they had General Staff Recon Unit or Unit 269. Which is part of the Israeli Defense Force. General it's, Staff Recon Unit? Yeah. That is the worst name. Yeah, Unit 269 is way cooler sounding. Yeah. Um, they've had them since 1957 because, you know, Israel kind of knew that there was going to be a little bit of backlash from this whole, like, new Israel country and, you know, the kind of no. like, long standing anti Semitism that has existed since yeah. the Jewish faith has. Uh, and then the UK is a little different, too, where the. Special Air Service, or SAS, was created during World War II to do wet works operations and then rechartered in 1947 um, and is like their premier anti-terrorist group. But, you know, because of this attack more than any other, but also the, the multiple hijackings that happened in the years subsequent to this and the increase of international terrorism in the 80s, um, and then there was a kind of a cool-down period in the 90s and then this this, you know wave we've had since 9-11, um, these groups were all formed, they're now like really good at what they do, and uh, there's a big reason why they don't do these kind of big spotlight uh, hostage taking or hijackings anymore for the most part, because every country that has, you know, that's uh, first world or whatever you want to call it, um, has a counter-terrorist unit that can deal with that and put right. those people down with minimal loss of life, right. and most of these groups that every operation they have is pretty much a smashing success like nine times out of ten. Yeah. So. Holy shit. Yeah, so the there's there's been a lot of movies that have been made about this. The documentary is really good, and again, that's called um, 
Is it one day in September? Uh, yeah, one day in September from 1999. Uh, they made that movie Munich, which I think was about... I never saw it, but it's my understanding it was about the Mossad Operation Wrath of God after the fact where they hunted down those guys that were the two terrorists. But also they killed a shitload of people that were just in the like, PLO that were any way related to the planning yeah. or staging of the attack or just were Palestinian or yeah. whatever. And, um, yeah, I imagine they wait. I mean, they killed those hostages, but those were Olympic athletes who like had clout. Yeah, in the the state of Israel. Yeah, well, I mean, it was like they were, tar- you know, they they shit on a national symbol. Exactly, the Olympic team. Yeah, yeah. But the other big thing that it's funny, I didn't really go into it into my paper so much, but I uh, and the other subject I thought about briefly doing, but it's too controversial, and I don't really want to get into it, at least today, uh, was I wrote a paper on Hamas and uh, Hezbollah and what they mean and how they've changed in the past 30 and 40 years. But the big thing about this attack, the, the biggest, I think, repercussion that we've faced since then is that a terrorist group learned that if they executed an attack correctly with the world's eye on them, they would get what they want to a yeah. point which was they didn't get the hostages released that they wanted from Israel, but like I said at the beginning, people know who the PLO are now. Yeah. Fucking Yasser uh, Arafat like, got the Nobel Peace Prize, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, yeah. and he's like one of the architects for Arabic terrorism in the first yeah. place, which is such a goddamn fucking joke. I mean, he was a person who changed a lot over his career, but, um, you know, international terrorism like this became a viable option for people who didn't otherwise have a voice and like it's amazing to me that we don't see more international terrorism incidents than we do i mean terrorist incidents happen all the time in the middle east africa where like we don't report on a daily basis like you see the statistics come up in your bbc news feed or whatever for like bomb and kabul goes off today and kills 199 people and injures another 200 but, like, nobody gives a shit. Yeah, and it's also knows. become so different in many different ways. But, like, this kind of high-profile thing was, like, this will work. Like, this is why September 11th happened. Because yeah. they were like, we'll catch the whole world's eye. Yeah. And so what if Osama bin Laden gets killed? Like, fucking, you know, between ISIS and, uh, Jesus, who are the bastards that uh, Osama was from? What was that group called? I can't remember. Oh, um, the, um... Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. Yeah. I was like, waiting for it. Right, like, they, they they gained so much more support because of those attacks. Like, it showed that we can strike back against nations yeah. that have so much more than us and still strike terror in their hearts, like, restrict freedoms in their countries and, yeah. and change international politics by blowing up civilians or whatever. So, you know, we can thank Black fucking September for, like, the shit we have to deal with today. We can also thank our own governments for, like, you know, continuing to destabilize the world mm-hmm. and... and basically profiting from this shit in the same way that the fucking terrorists do, but mm. I feel like I'm already on the watch list, so whatever, but like <laughs> it's really so fucked, you know what I mean? It's fucked when like we live in a world where people's only option is to blow up people in a marketplace or to fucking kill athletes, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's how fucked up I could really go off on a tangent here, but listen, I'm sure say, at least one of the four people who listen to the podcast consistently mm-hmm. is part of the NSA. Yeah, and they're yeah. gonna tell and me. they know. I think cool, though. FBI are always listening, so yeah, I feel like there's way too many podcasts for them to worry about us. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, this is ways. a this is a topic <laughs> generally that's hard. very near and dear to my heart. I I find international terrorism to be 
endlessly frustrating, fascinating, and um, something that we'll deal with for the entirety of our lives and our, you know, children and grandchildren and, well, whenever this garbage planet finally sees its final day, you know, they'll deal with it until that point. So this isn't something that's going away. And or until aliens attack. Yeah, God willing. Did you guys like that? I'm freaked out. I'm scared. Yeah. I want to believe. Frank, Dick Fetty, excellent work. Excellent topic. That was a great mystery topic. Yes, I was surprised. I really liked now it. Now it's your turn for a mystery topic. Mystery topic, gonna be fisting. Isn't it your turn? She did no, news. she did all of the... He I did, did two episodes worth of horrible Yeah, he did all the animated so I'll do mystery topic. I've, I've kind of been let off the hook for the last three episodes. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of my four. time to pull. Well, I did. I always do weird news, but that's pretty easy. Yeah. We sent so. half the stories. No. Well, one of them. One. <laughs> so anyway. I think now that we're done that, it's time for Beardo Ben's Best Buy. That's true. Uh, my Best Buy of the week are these amazing press-on nails that Alexa has. Uh, they make me feel powerful. Me and Dick Fetty have one on each of our pinkies. Alexa had ten on, but she keeps popping them off because she feels too powerful. One of them was just, like, too big for I'm me just, to... I'm just kidding. She's, she's got a, a compulsion to take off her... She does. That's not actually my no, uh, best buy this week. Oh, really? No. Oh. My best buy is a game that I recently restarted playing... Uh, it was one of my favorite games. You've already covered Until Dawn. No. I'm kidding. Oh. It's not Until Dawn. It's a different game. It's oh, a game okay. that I played last year. It was one of my favorite games last year. Abe's Odyssey. Yep, Abe's Odyssey, which came out last year. We're from the that past. That was a great We're traveling game. through time. Game. That was a great game. Yeah, you can make him fart. Yeah, yeah, you could. Oh, I got spinach in here talking about farts. I'm anyway, <laughs> thanks, Dick Fetty. You're welcome. I'm going to fuck up your next disco box so bad. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so the game is Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. Uh, I absolutely love this game. I also have been playing the DLC as of late. I have not finished it, but I have been playing it. Everything I've played so far, I paid $30 for the season pass, which saved me $10 as opposed to buying it all individually. All of the DLC I've played so far is really good, but we'll get there. We'll start with the meat and potatoes of the game. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the original Resident Evil and the re-release or remake, I guess they did. It wasn't really a remake, but they just tacked on better graphics for, I guess it came out on GameCube first. Yeah, and then they did it for PS3, I think. Yeah, and that that game I, I love. It terrified me to no end when I was younger. I had We're talking to... about Resident Evil 1 or yes, 2? Yes, 1. Oh, but 2 is better. True, but this is the thing that started me on it, you know? Yeah. Being trapped in that house, almost becoming a Jill sandwich. You know? You could have been a Jill sandwich! Man, the voice acting back then was so brutal. great. Yeah, brutal. But... Leon! The... Leon! <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Uh, Resident Evil 7 completely changed the direction that Resident Evil was going for a long time because after 3 it became more action and less horror. And in this they really focus on the horror and the main bad guys for most of the game are 
less zombarific and more Texas Chainsaw Massacre family, which yeah. I love. And the characters are very well written. The story is very well written. Short and skinny of it is you're this guy named Ethan and your wife has been gone for three years. You get a piece of mail saying, I'm at this house in the south. Come get me. And it's first person and there's no tank controls unlike the older games. Uh, you, you get to this place. You get out of the car. The graphics are beautiful. Yeah, it is a pretty game. Yeah, and you go up to the house and creepy things start happening. I remember I was playing this game I think it was before uh, a game night that we that me and a few other people do once every two weeks and I was playing with all the lights off and then somebody knocked on the door and I threw my fucking controller. The first half of the game is very creepy. The later half, once there's a new type of enemy introduced, is much less creepy, but it's still very much Resident Evil, even though it's first person. You still have to contend with having only so much item space and having to use item boxes. There is a hard mode where it harkens back to the original Resident Evil games where you had the ink ribbons to save. You only had so many. So in this, you have so many cassette tapes because you save on a little recording device. And the, the, the gameplay is just good. The story is good. The DLC itself, uh, the, what is it? I think it's Band Footage Volume 1 and Volume 2. There's a survival mode, which kind of reminds, even though I really don't like the games, uh, the Call of Duty zombie stuff, where it's pretty much survival. You, you start at, I think, midnight, and you just survive till 5 a.m., wave after wave of enemy, and you get money, so to speak. They're kind of like machine parts uh, over certain periods of time that you get to spend on more ammo, healing remedies, different guns, stuff like that. There is another one which is kind of like an escape the room game, which is more puzzle oriented, mm. where you're locked in a room and you have to figure out how to get out of the room without getting murdered. Then there that is... Fun. It, it's it, they were surprisingly good, especially for how short each of the things are. Yeah. There's another one called 21, which essentially you're playing a torturific game of blackjack. And being as obsessed I am with board games, it's set up very interestingly because you're playing blackjack, but it's not with a deck of cards. You have There's a deck of cards that's just numbers. It's numbered 1 through 11, and there are no doubles at all so you can kind of glean what the other person might have and just like blackjack if you bust you lose if you both bust it's whoever's higher and then as you continue through the game there's trump cards that you can use that will you know up the other person's bet so they lose more fingers or they get electrocuted more uh, or you change it from 21 to 17 or 24 or 27 I spent Four hours just playing that one because it was just so well put together, and I've been trying to figure out how to turn it into a real it, game. It is really funny because I was uh, I was playing Yakuza Two lately. I'm trying to go through the Yakuza series, and it is a time-consuming affair. But they have I was in the casino. I won 
I don't know, like a couple hundred thousand dollars doing this fighting arena thing, and then I lost it all at the casino in like ten minutes. I was just like, no, I'm going to keep playing blackjack. Weston was like, you lost all your money. You Why don't you go and just save and just cut your losses? I was like, I'm going to win it back. I was like, don't you know? Like, I'm going to win it back. I can play fucking casino games and, and video games for so long. It is so fun. I love gambling. Well, the best part I about mean, it is, so there's, in, there's the main storyline part where uh, Lucas, who's one of the the son of the family, uh, who's pretty much like an evil MacGyver mm. or Jigsaw or what have you, you wake up and you have your hand strapped in this machine, and the way the betting works is you bet each one of your fingers. So nice. these little guillotines pop up, and then the second one is you get electrocuted, and if you hit 10, it's automatic death. And then the final one is a bunch of knives attached to a wheel and you're betting for distance so you're betting for how close it's going to be to the other guy or how close it's going to be to you and it's set up really well the final one on there is called daughters which i'm not going to really go into if you haven't played the game but it sounds sexy it it is about what happens prior to ethan getting to the place i played a little bit of uh i think it's called no hero which is, I'm not going to even get into it, because if you haven't played the game, stating who it's about, what it's about, will give it away. But it gives some gives some more backstory from what I've seen, because I've only played it for about ten minutes, because I decided, I was like, I need to replay this game if I'm going to play something that happens after it. It kind of gives a little bit more backstory to what happened to Umbrella in between the game itself and the previous games. <coughs> because... The whole game, you're just in this farmhouse, you're dealing with this crazy backwoods killing family, and you're like, well, this is a Resident Evil game, where's the zombies, where's the... Where's Umbrella? Where's Umbrella? And you slowly figure out all these things. Uh, but I you know, do know that most of the game is pretty scary. About halfway through, the fear factor drops a lot, mainly because... Uh, just the way the enemies are later in game, they're not as terrifying. I mean, obviously, if there's a bunch of them on you, it's scary, but it's not like the true dread of crawling on your hands and knees with a gun that may or may not do anything to your enemy in an old farmhouse that has puzzles that are almost exactly like the old games that are arbitrary, and you're like, why would anyone put this in their house? Why do I have to collect three dog heads to get outside? This is stupid, but it's cool. It's fun. Yeah. So I definitely recommend that game and all of its DLC. There is one I haven't played, uh, which I'm not even going to name if you don't know, if you haven't played the game. I mean, obviously you can look it up yourself, but um, I'm sure it's as good as the rest. And I think Capcom did a really good job revitalizing the series of Resident Evil, especially... After they ran into the fucking ground. Yeah, after they ran into the ground, and on top of the fact that there's still a hole in my heart from... Konami being a shit company and not giving me Silent Hills. That there's just this. I'm still angry about that. That happened so long ago. I'm still so angry. Yeah, but nothing beats the first. I mean, I know people like the second Silent Hill better, but the first one, man, you can just give the Jesus. Yeah, I loved the first one. I loved, and I don't know if this is controversial or not because I haven't talked to many people about it, but I loved, uh, was it five? The Room? I think it was five. I think it was four. Was it four? I think it was four. And. If you haven't played that, I'm going to ruin it anyway. At one point, the devil's coming out of your ceiling. And it's very in that vein of... 
<coughs> eternal darkness where creepy things will just appear and you're almost losing your mind or in the vein of um, Descent. No. Amnesia the Dark Amnesia, Descent. Amnesia the Dark Descent, yes. Which is the only game that gets scarier as it goes. Yeah, which we should play. But anyway, um, definitely pick up that game. It's one of the best, if not the best game that came out in 2017, which is definitely a high call oh, because a lot of good games... Dude, that game is amazing. It's so good, and it makes me... I have, I have Assassin's Creed Origins, and I have Nier Automata, and I just put them down on a whim because I wanted to play this game again. That's how much I love this game, because Nier Automata is great. I'm still kind of getting to the meat and potatoes of Assassin's Creed Origins. I'm still pretty burnt by the last one I played, which I think was Syndicate, and that game was straight Garbo. Garbo. But I, I chose to cho play this game over two game uh, Near Automata, which I was already having a ton of fun with. Yeah, that was dumb. But I hear you. Thank you for the uh, recommendation. Maybe I'll yeah. check it out when I'm dead. All right, well, I mean... No, I just don't ever have time to play anything new. I can't beat Yakuza 2. It's, it's not even new anymore. Oh, you know what I mean. That's your decision, Dick Fetting. I know. My decisions are always poor. Well, from all of us here at Motel Hell, go fuck yourself. Yes. And uh, we'll see you next time. Later, nerds. Later, nerds. <laughs>